Welcome to the Co-Mission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Co-Mission Network. It's the final episode in our series looking back on Revive 2016 and talks from Don Carson. Today's talk is on Luke 16, 19-31, The Rich Man and Lazarus. What shall we make of this parable? Is it a simple reversal? Live life well and in hell. Suffer pain, enjoy great gain. Everything gets switched around. Well, there's no doubt a reversal going on here, but to pretend that this parable sort of summarizes all of the Bible's message, there is a great reversal between this life and the next life, is certainly far too simplistic. After all, there are some God-blessed and godly rich people in the Bible. Abraham, Job, Solomon, at least in his early years, Esther, Philemon, probably Theophilus. Moreover, although the Bible has many passages that express compassion toward the poor and indignation, especially where the poor have been oppressed, the Bible is also realistic enough that it recognizes in some cases the poor are poor because of really bad conduct. Some are lazy. Proverbs says, a little sleep, a little slumber a little closing of the eyes to sleep, so shall destruction overtake you. So the Bible recognizes that poverty might come about for many different reasons. So how to integrate, moreover, the diversity of biblical descriptions with the fact that the message of the Bible is not Make sure you're poor and oppressed and disgusting down here, and then you'll get heaven over there. Rather, the Bible's message turns on Jesus at the end of the day, God's gift, God's plan. That's why it's called good news. It's good news about what God has done to save His image bearers from their sin and its consequences. It's good news about what God has done in Christ Jesus to save His image bearers from their sin and its consequences. It's good news about what God has done in Jesus through His death and resurrection to save His image bearers from sin and its consequences. Did you see that is how the Bible is put together as as a whole book? So to presuppose that what this parable is doing is simply summarizing things in some great reversal motif is certainly mistaken. So how should we approach this passage? Well, my dad used to say, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. So we'll start with the context. There are quite a number of hints we could look at. We'll pause for a moment at three of them. Back up just a wee bit to verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 13. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So there's a principle. You cannot have two ultimate masters. Eventually, they'll go in different directions, and then you cannot 
bow absolutely to either. They'll pull you apart. You go one way or the other way. And then this general principle is concretized with God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Money, once it becomes God, de-gods God. It becomes an idol. Then secondly, if you read on to verses 14 and 15, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They're sneering at Jesus because he seems to them to be a poor itinerant preacher from the north country, from Galilee, despised Galilee. And they're saying to themselves, you know, the reason he can talk so condescendingly about money is because <laughs> he doesn't have any. If he had some, he would know what a pleasure and privilege it is to have money. You can give a lot more away when you're rich, you know. He doesn't really understand. But God has blessed us with money, so we're the authorities on the matter. God hasn't blessed him with any money, so he pontificates about what he doesn't understand. So they're speaking with sneering condescension. So Jesus speaks to them, and he says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, in the context, you are the ones who justify yourselves must mean you are the ones who justify yourselves because of your money. Now, in fact, Luke's gospel has as one of its minor interwoven themes the theme of self-justification. Let me draw your attention to two or three other passages so that you see what I mean, and then we'll come back to this one. For example, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells another parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there is a kind of dispute between Jesus and an expert in the law in verses 25 to 28, and Jesus clearly gets the best of that little dispute. But the man doesn't like being shown up, so he says, verse 29, and Luke comments, he wanted to justify himself. He asks, and who is my neighbor? And then you get the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, in other words, the, the motivation for this man's second round of questions with Jesus is not that he was trying to find the truth, not that he wanted to be instructed by Jesus, but that he wanted to justify himself. I've been teaching for 40-plus years. And you, you discover that questions in a classroom, or for that matter, in a local church, can come out of many different corners. Some people ask questions because they want answers. Some people ask questions because they're trying to show you up. And some people ask a question and then discover it's not such a thoughtful one. And instead of saying, oops, sorry, I goofed, I take that one back, they try to justify themselves, and they ask a question even more idiotic. Now, I'm sure this never happens in any of your churches, but it has been known to occur elsewhere. And this move towards self-justification becomes really pretty complicated. For example, in chapter 18, another instance of self-justification, verse 9, to some people who were confident of their own righteousness, that is, they're justifying themselves because they seem to be so good in their own eyes, and looked down at everyone else, Jesus told yet another parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And you know what? He was telling the truth. Everything he said was true. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then Jesus summarizes his own parable. I tell you that this man, that is the sinner who is confessing, rather than the other, that is the Pharisee, went home justified before God. The Pharisee went home justified before himself, self-justification. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In other words, in God's justification of us, spelled out throughout the Bible, but nowhere more clearly than in Romans and Galatians, God declares us just. He justifies us, not on the basis of how good we are, but on the basis of the sacrifice that He has Himself provided in His Son. He takes our place and declares us just. Now, if that were all He did, it wouldn't be enough, to be quite frank, because He would be declaring us just even though we're sinners and wouldn't be changing us. But the whole salvation of God comes and declares us just, able to enter into God's holy presence, but also transforms us with new birth, with the experience of sanctification across many decades, and finally with what Paul calls glorification, when we're transformed finally into the likeness of Christ and resurrection existence where sin will not even be possible for us anymore. That's all of salvation. But at the outset of that is justification. God justifies the ungodly. That's spectacular good news. And the opposite of that is self-justification where I'm justifying myself on the basis of what I have done and what I have achieved. Luke is playing with that theme constantly in his gospel. So in our passage, chapter 16, verse 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the context because you've got money. You know how it is. I, you, you come from a poor background, and don't have very much. But eventually your job requires, it's not, it's not a very high-paying job, but your job requires that you, you get some sort of vehicle. You sort of dare, scarcely dare call it a vehicle. The termites hold hands to hold it together. It burns more oil than it burns gasoline. But it's yours. And then perhaps in the mercy of God, you, uh, you get a better job. You get promoted and Lo and behold, a few years go by and you're driving a, an Audi or whatever. Something more than a, what the French Canadians, where I was brought up, called a bazoo. Instead of driving a bazoo, you're driving a Jaguar. Now, when you come up to a red light, you're not so carnal as to look at the bazoo that is in the next lane and sniff your nose at it, you're not so carnal as to slip it into neutral and rev the engine a few... Brum, brum. 
You're not that crass. But nevertheless, when the light changes and you depress the accelerator a little more than you ordinarily would to ensure that you pull away from this stoplight a little faster and a little more smoothly than anybody else on the road right then can, you drive away and you feel justified. Not, not, not so crassly as to say, this proves I'm getting to heaven. And yet there is a sense of self-congratulation in it somehow, isn't there? Because money can be used psychologically to enable you to justify yourself. So Jesus dismisses the Pharisees in this respect. You are the ones who justify yourselves. That's why you didn't understand my saying about God and money. And then he goes even farther. He says, generalizing now, at the end of verse 15, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Not the dirty things that people value are detestable in God's sight. But more generically, what people value highly. That is, these things become God. That's why, according to Paul, covetousness is labeled idolatry. Because what you want the most becomes God for you. And immediately after this, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. One more contextual hint. Turn back to chapter 9, verse 51. Now, all three of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though they're parallel in many ways as they tell the story of Jesus, they have different structures. For example, Matthew has a block of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Then the next block, chapters 8 and 9, are a collection of miracle stories, wonderful things that Jesus did with levels of meaning. Then chapter 10 is the next block where he's got a, a trainee mission, a focus on training his disciples for what's next, very ordered in a topical way. But the miracles in the central block, chapters 8 and 9, in Mark's gospel are scattered throughout his gospel. In other words, Mark at that point is following a more chronological procession, whereas Matthew is following there a more topical procession in order to bring certain points to bear. Well, one of the structural things that Luke does is begin what some have called Luke's travel narrative. That is, Luke portrays Jesus already back in chapter 9, verse 51, as heading toward Jerusalem. We read, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, that is, through his cross, burial, resurrection, and ascension, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And this is in chapter 9. You're barely over a third of the way through the book. And already Luke has so ordered his material that from now on, he's heading toward Jerusalem. Five times between now and the Passion narrative, which starts in chapter 19, we're told Jesus was heading toward Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. He was resolutely heading toward Jerusalem without any mention of going back to Galilee at all. This is Luke's travel narrative. Do you, do you see what that means? That means that everything that takes place from chapter 9, verse 51 on, takes place under the shadow of the impending cross. Everything. So that even the first time through reading this book, you might not catch that. After you've read through the book two or three times and, and see that 
Jesus resolutely set his face to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going there to suffer and die and bear our sins and rise again. Everything must be interpreted under the route Jesus is taking, resolutely setting his face to Jerusalem and the cross and the resurrection. Now let's come back to our parable. In fact, I'm I'm going to throw in one more little contextual hint. There is a sequence here of three parables. In chapter 15, 11 to 32, the prodigal son, a prodigal wastes his father's possessions. And then in chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, a dishonest servant wastes his master's possessions. And then here in our parable, a rich man wastes his own possessions. You, You see, Luke does have a lot of emphasis on what not to do with money. But now we'll come to our parable. It's divided into two parts. First, the narrative, where you have a contrast between two different men, the rich man and Lazarus. And second, a dialogue between the rich man in hell and Abraham. And here you have a portrait of a blind, damned man. So first of all, the narrative, verses 19 to 23. You have a picture of the rich man, sumptuous living, then Lazarus, in life, poor, ill, broken. And then after death, still Lazarus, but now with great blessing. And then the rich man, now in pain. That's how the narrative runs. Verses 19, 20, 21, 23. Begin at 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. In the ancient world, purple cloth could be dyed purple, could become purple by only two means, and both of them were very expensive. I'll spare you the details. But because they were so expensive, these means, therefore, if you were rich and wanted to flaunt your riches, then you wore a lot of purple. So this man is not only well-to-do, he's showing it off. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. Well, the word translated fine linen in our versions is used in the original for his undergarments. In other words, you can hear Jesus with a little snicker in his voice, a little laughter. It's as if he's saying, if you really want to know, even his underwear is posh. (laughs) He lives in luxury every day. He he eats sumptuously, multi-course meals, the best wines, never makes a mistake with respect to which drink is supposed to be served with which food. Lots of help. Cooks, chefs, butlers. So rich he makes Downton Abbey look like a pauper's place. Just fairly, very rich. And then we're introduced to Lazarus. And this man interestingly enough, is named. The rich man is not even named. The way stories were told in the ancient world, only the important people in the story were named. The rich man isn't named. He may be important because of all of his wealth, but he's not important enough to be given a name. Lazarus has a name. But the shocking thing is that the name Lazarus means the one whom God helps. And you first read this story and you think, boy, if that's the one whom God helps, I'd hate to be the one whom God doesn't help. 
But what you're supposed to do instead is to read right through the story. You can only judge who it is whom God helps at the end of the story. Fifty billion years from now, no one is going to be in any doubt whatsoever about which person in this story is the one whom God helps. He's Lazarus. We're told he was a beggar. Now, some beggars can be beggars just because they're half drunk all the time or they're too lazy or whatever. But I think we're to understand from the context here that he's too ill to work. There's no social security system. Moreover, there are no clinics. There's no NHS. He's ill, covered with sores, unable to work, hungry, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So, in the social system of the first century, it was understood that the ordinary poor villagers in an agrarian society scarcely had the resources themselves to help someone like this, but the rich people in town were supposed to have the money and, and to provide some almsgiving, some, some care. They were expected to take into their own homes, put up in one of the back rooms or w- one of the side buildings, uh, 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 some adequate care with enough food and, and, and uh, nursing care and, and uh, affection and sustenance and so on that the person wouldn't simply die in the streets. That was expected. That was the way the social system worked. But this man is completely hardened to any social responsibilities. The rich man is laid, apparently by the villagers, the poor man is laid, apparently by the villagers, at the rich man's gate, which suggests that this really is a rich man. He's he's got a walled compound with a gate. And dogs are mentioned. In the first century, there were no dogs that were pets, labradoodles and chihuahuas and things. Dogs were either wild dogs, think um, Australian dingoes, or, or they were work dogs, in this case apparently guard dogs. So between the house and the gate with its wall and so on are a pair of dogs apparently, plural dogs in any case. Now in those days there were no tins of dog food that you could buy at Tesco's. The dogs ate what fell from the rich man's table. You recall in the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, that's one of the things she brings up. At least the dogs eat what falls from the table. That's what's presupposed here. Lazarus longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He would have liked to have had even the dog food, but he's given nothing. The only beings that show any compassion whatsoever are the dogs themselves as this poor, ill, broken, hungry, weak man leans against the gate, the guard dogs stick out their snouts and lick his sores. And then the scene changes. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. There's no mention of a funeral probably buried in the village common grave, but he is carried to Abraham's side, literally to Abraham's bosom, and that needs explaining. In the ancient world, most meals were eaten either sitting or standing, but if it were a feast, then you ate lying down on a low mat. You'd 
lie down and lean on your arm. And then there was a table, six inches or so off the ground. And at each place around this table, then there would be a chunk of bread. And every two or three places, there'd be a, a bowl, a, a bowl of pureed fruit or pureed meat or the like. And you'd reach over and take a piece of bread and dip it in the bowl and eat. That's the way you ate at proper feasts. So do you recall John's description of what takes place at the Last Supper? Jesus is saying all kinds of uh, slightly mystifying and frankly frightening things. And at this table where all of the apostles are around leaning on their, leaning on their arms and eating from the table, eventually uh, Jesus says, uh, one of you is going to betray me. They start looking at each other. Uh, not I, Lord, not I. Uh, 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 sure, surely not I. This can't be happening. And it transpires in the story that John, John the Apostle, is next to Jesus. So he's got his back to Jesus. And Peter, somewhat farther away, says, psst, psst, ask him. So John does what is inevitable in that circumstance. He leans on his arm and puts his head back on Jesus' breast and says, who is it, Lord? And so John comes to be known as the apostle who laid his head on Jesus' breast. That's the same expression here. This rich man, Lazarus, has his head on Abraham's breast. So what's presupposed is that he's, uh, he's at a banquet, probably presupposing the messianic banquet, the ultimate culminating banquet in the new heaven and the new earth. And he's seated at the place of honor next to the ultimate patriarch, talking so intimately that his head is on Abraham's breast. This poor man who wouldn't even be given dog food. The rich man also died. He was buried. That, that fact is mentioned. Almost certainly it was a civic celebration. Great speeches about what this man has done for our community and all the rest. He was buried with all due pomp and dignity. But in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and Abraham, saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. How he recognizes Abraham, we don't know. It's part of the story. It's just a story. It's a parable. But nevertheless, in this story, he's in hell now, in torment. And he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham and Lazarus far away. That brings us to the second part of the story, that is the dialogue, the blindness of a damned man, verses 30, 24 to 31. What you find here are three exchanges. In each exchange, the rich man in hell asks a question addressed to Abraham, and in each instance, Abraham responds. That happens three times. Number one, verse 24. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. 
Do you see how shockingly blind this is? Try stretching your imagination. Put yourself in this rich man's place. You've lived sumptuously, you've had the best food, posh underwear, and purple clothes. And you've been hard to everybody, but especially this wretch, Lazarus, who's been at your gate. And now you wake up in hell, and you see Lazarus with Abraham. What's the first thing you say? Don't you think you'd be inclined to say, Oh, did I get that one wrong? Or, Oh, Lazarus, I am so sorry. Or, Lazarus, can you ever forgive me? Or, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Wouldn't you expect something like that? Wouldn't you? But instead, this man doesn't even address Lazarus. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't acknowledge any fault. He's so focused on himself, even now, that he addresses only the top man. Because when you're posh, that's what you do. You address only the top man. And he plays the race card. Father Abraham. I'm a son of Israel too, you know. Father Abraham. Send this uh, menial to get some water so, so that my tongue can be cooled. So even in hell, he is still regarding himself as somehow at the center of the universe. He ignored Lazarus when he was in pain on earth. Now he wants something to alleviate his own pain, to alleviate his own pain. He demands services from the one to whom he would not even give dog food. The rich man, even in hell, cannot imagine giving up his self-importance. There's not a hint of repentance here, not anywhere. And Abraham's response? Son, remember. And what he is to remember is precisely the narrative in the first part with the same sequence. Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, Lazarus received bad things, now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, verse 26, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. You know, in some theological circles today, in some ostensibly Christian circles today, some argue that God's love is so rich and undiluted that eventually hell will be emptied. They argue that God will keep pursuing people even in hell until eventually, even in hell, people will turn in repentance and faith and ask God for mercy and God will save them because He loves them so much and, and then they'll, they'll get out of hell and that'll continue and continue, and continue, until finally, hell itself is emptied out. And this is said to honor the doctrine of the love of God. Well, I think it misunderstands the love of God, for a start, but in addition, it directly contradicts Jesus' own word. What does this text say? Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Listen. By the time you get to hell, 
there is never a way out. A great chasm is set in place. There is no way out. If you are to escape hell, it will have to be determined before you die. But you know, there's another remarkable element in what Abraham says. He says, the great chasm is fixed so that no one from there can get here. Well, you can understand why some from there might want to get here. Not because they want the holiness, but at least to escape the pain. But Jesus also says, none from here can go there. Why would anybody want to? There's only one reason. The text doesn't mention what Lazarus is doing at this point. But the only reason why Abraham, in this context, with these people in play, can say, no one from here can go there, it's as if Lazarus is saying, it's all right, I'll, I'll take him some water, I'll take him some water. But no one can go from here to there either. And the second exchange. Well, at least, the rich man says, send somebody to warn my brothers. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, you must not understand this to be a sign of repentance. He still doesn't apologize to Lazarus. He still doesn't ask for forgiveness. It's merely familial consideration. He wants his brothers to escape this end. He's still only concerned for himself and his own. And if Lazarus, still not addressed, cannot be used as a table waiter to bring, them, to bring him water, then perhaps he can be used as an errand boy. And Abraham's response? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In that culture, everybody went to synagogue. Week by week, the brothers hear scriptures read, parts from the law, parts from the prophets, sometimes parts from the Psalms. They hear the word of God, the threats, the warnings, the promises, the character of God, They hear it week by week. And Abraham says, in effect, that if they are deaf to the words of Moses and the prophets, then they're just going to be deaf. Let them listen to what God has so graciously provided. Holy Scripture. And that prompts the third exchange. No, Father Abraham. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Do you hear this man? He's in hell and he's correcting Abraham's theology. Even in, theo- even in hell, he, he, he cannot bring himself to think that he might have got something fundamentally wrong. He's correcting Abraham's theology while he himself is in hell. You got that one wrong, Abraham. 
Let me instruct you on a couple of theological principles here. If someone comes back from the dead with all the display of miracle and power that that would entail, then they would surely believe. Let Let me correct you on how epistemology properly works. And Abraham's answer? If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And of course, by the time Luke writes these words, we know where the story goes. We know that Jesus is on his road to Jerusalem. All of this is uttered under the shadow of the impending cross. And eventually he gets to Jerusalem and he dies and rises again the third day. And some believe and some don't. In other words, just because someone rose from the dead does not guarantee proper belief. And indeed, the apostles learned that during the days of Jesus' public ministry. There was an historical man called Lazarus whose account is reported in John chapter 11. Jesus raised this man from the dead after he had been in the grave for four days. Four days without any embalming fluid. Four days under mid-eastern sun. Four days, and this man is smelling. He's decaying. And Jesus raises him from the dead. And what happens? Some, were told, put their trust in Jesus, and others went and ratted Jesus out to the authorities who didn't say, hmm, oh, well, we'll have to rethink this. Maybe he really is somebody pretty important after all. But they start plotting to put him to death. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The reason people don't believe is not because of too little evidence. It's because of too much sin. Too much wanting to be at the center of the universe. Too unwilling to listen to the truth of Scripture. Now let me wind this up because there are some important lessons to learn here. Number one, there is a sphere of rejoicing to pursue. There is a place of torment to flee. Here you have, most commonly, three score years and ten. But you will live forever. That's why Hebrews memorably says at the end of chapter 9, it is appointed to each one of us first to die, and then after that, the judgment. So even on the merest mathematical grounds, it is incomprehensibly blind to focus all of your attention and priorities on your threescore years and ten, your seventy years now, and nothing on the eternity that follows. It just makes no sense. But it is so much easier to 
simply disown or deny or distance oneself or refuse to think about eternity. I have a lot of students who gather in my home from time to time. We talk about everything. If I want to say around a table with 15 or 18 students, well, what do you think about the latest developments and debates over homosexual marriage? Everybody's got an opinion. But if I say, I'd like to tell you how my dad died, you can cut the air with a knife. In Western culture, that's the last taboo. You can talk about sexual intercourse till the cows come home. Nobody's offended. You talk about death and you're being culturally rude. You don't talk about that. But the Bible does. Jesus does. There is an eternity of bliss to be pursued. We'll come to that a little more tomorrow morning. There is a place of torment to flee. And in this place of torment, there is no opportunity for a second chance. Hell is not filled with people who are deeply repentant and wish they could come out. It's filled with people who wish they could come out, but still think of themselves as at the center of the universe. As far as I can see, there's not a single passage in Scripture that describes people in hell, however symbol-laden the language, as those who are now deeply repentant and eager to trust Christ. The depictions are all of people who are past hope and hardened in their sin. It's a place where sin goes on and on and on. Otherwise, hell would be filled with people who love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. That's what it would mean to have sinless people in hell. But it's not filled with people who, who love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. It's filled with people who love themselves and still keep on sinning and still keep on sinning world without end and receiving the recompense of their lostness. Second, the things in which we take so much pride, like the rich man and his money, things like wealth, yes, but also ethnicity, religious privilege, power, beauty, youth, physical prowess, all these things which can be so good actually so often blind us to our need of grace. The question always to be asked is, who is Lazarus? Who is the one whom God helps? And within this framework, we must recognize the huge and potentially corrosive power of money as a God. And finally, God has not left Himself without witness. We must listen to the witness of Scripture, to the witness of Christians talking to us, or we are damned. God has graciously provide us, provided us with a witness, warned us of the wrath to come, made clear what the gospel is. And we harden our hearts to it, not only to our shame, but to our eternal lostness. The old poem of Bertram Shattuck 
is not much more than popular lining, but yet it still conveys a great deal of truth. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel who stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper, he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness, when death came, was left far behind. The angel who opened the records, not a trace of his greatness could find. The moral man came to the judgment, but his self-righteous rags would not do. The men who had crucified Jesus had passed on as mortal men, too. The soul that had put off salvation, not tonight, I'll get saved by and by, no time now to think of religion. At last he had found time to die. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. Thanks for listening to the Commission Podcast. To find out more about this year's Revive with guest speakers Kevin DeYoung and Efren Buckle, go to commission.org slash revive.